So during Advent and uh, now into the Christmas season, we're looking at the book of Ruth. Um, Last week, we took a break on Christmas Day to look at Paul's commandment to us uh, in uh, Philippians chapter 3 to rejoice. And so um, what I realized last night, uh, sitting on the uh, sofa with my wife watching football, when she turned to me and said, so what are you preaching on tomorrow? Uh, And I said, Ruth, and she's like, oh, we're still in Ruth. And so what I realized when she said that was, oh, I've been thinking about this all week. I bet no one else has. So, um, uh, yes, we're, we're going to continue in, in Ruth. Last week, uh, two weeks ago, we left off with uh, the reality that uh, Naomi is beginning to see a glimmer of, of uh, hope and possibility uh, that God could actually provide a redeemer for she and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so this week we're going to pick up uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. That text uh, is in the bulletin and uh, also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, who with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So um, New Year's is the is probably the weirdest holiday we have, I think. You know, I... Uh, I just don't understand all the uh, hype. Uh, but some of you really like it. And so that's good. I'm glad you had a good time. And i um, glad you're here this morning. Um, but one of the things that uh, happens at uh, uh, New Year's is that you, uh, or at least the week between Christmas and New Year's, is CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all this run all these things about the year in review. And it's generally the consensus is it's been a terrible year. Uh, actually, I think you could say that about all of them. Um, uh, until Jesus comes back, they're all going to be, you know, the best of times, the worst of times, depending on the hour of the day and what I had for breakfast. And so uh, so the so the fact is, one of the things that they do with these is they list all the famous people who died in the last year, which, uh, you know, people we lost this year, which, OK, I'm OK with that. I, some of these people, frankly, I didn't feel a particular loss, but uh, it's you know, it's it's a it's a cultural thing that we go through to, to list those. Well, one of the. As I was thinking about this the last week, I came across a man who died on New Year's on Christmas Eve, a guy who actually had a pretty formative effect on me in the 70s when I read his book. And I'm going to warn you about this ahead of time. Some of you have heard of the book. Some of you haven't. The author's name is Richard Adams. Richard Adams wrote a book about rabbits. And I know everybody's going to shut down now like, what? He's going to talk to us about rabbits. Well, it's kind of about rabbits, but it's also about more than rabbits. It's called Watership Down. It's about a group of rabbits, a culture of rabbits whose uh, home is being destroyed and they got to move. 
And um, these, the book was based on the stories that he, t- he told his daughters when they were growing up. And uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of religious overtones in this book. There's a lot of uh, political overtones in this book. Um, and um, there's a lot of great stuff about, uh, about rabbits. And one of the things that occurred to me, and it just occurred to me this last week as I was thinking about it, is how similar people are to rabbits. Because one of the things that the rabbit God, when he makes the rabbits, one of the things that he says about them is, you know, everybody's going to be your predator. Uh, but it'll only work if they can catch you. So I'll make you fast. Right. Uh, and one of the things that you find out about rabbits, and I think this is one of the reasons why it resonated with me when when I was a kid. You know, we think of rabbits as these little fluffy creatures. Well, pick one up wrong and let them tear into you with their hind feet and their claws. You can laugh all you want. They'll tear you up. They're vicious. They are. They have to chew all the time uh, because if they don't, their teeth will grow so big that they'll, they'll die. Um, but it's a great story. It's one worth reading even now, some 40 something years after he wrote it. Well, there's a conversation uh, about midway through the book between this this rabbit creator God uh, and uh, one of his his followers. And, and he says this, he says, I have learned that with creatures one loves, suffering is not the only thing for which one may pity them. We we t- typically when we run across people who are suffering, it immediately calls out our pity. He says, but a rabbit or a human, a believer who does not know when a gift has made him safe is poorer than a slug, even though he may think otherwise himself. Uh, And in the context of this, the God who is speaking there has given himself as a gift to protect this little warren of rabbits. And so one of the things that I think about that describes the reality of the gospel for us, right? That the, the fact is a gift has made us safe. That's what we've just celebrated. Uh, the reality of the atoning uh, life and work of Jesus Christ on our, our part has made us uh, safe. And so the fact of the matter is, as we, as we think about that and as we unpack that, that is the, the reality in which we live and in which we move and that should shape the way we think about our lives, right? And so what's happening here in, uh, in this, in this uh, story that we've been reading is we are actually watching uh, the reality of Naomi come to life. We're seeing her come to grips with the fact that there actually is a God. There actually is a God who remembers her. There's a God who knows her, a God who loves her, and a God who is providing redemption for her in her widowhood, in her, in her desolation, in her sadness, and in her brokenness. And that he's caring for her. So, one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that in chapter two, as we looked a few weeks ago, we moved from at the end of chapter one, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly for me. Remember, Naomi uh, says uh, that uh, she changes her name from Naomi, which means sweet or light, uh, to Mara, which means bitter. She looks at her life and she sees the sovereign God has dealt her a hard hand that that she had she had to live through a famine. She had to move to Moab. 
She had to watch her sons marry Moabite women. She had to watch her husband die and then both her sons. And she has no grandchildren. She has no husband. She has no hope. And so she has returned back to Bethlehem. And Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, has gone with her. And so as Ruth has gone out and gleaned and gotten food from from um, uh, Boaz, as they're able to be provided for, she has begun to move from the fact that she was barely able to speak at the beginning of chapter 2 when Ruth said she was going to go out and glean, to now, she says at the end of chapter 2, the Lord has not forgotten his kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. She has a sense, even though her circumstances haven't changed, they're still depending on Boaz, they're still depending on gleaning, they're still in a situation that is very uh, shaky, and the future is uncertain. <coughs> What's going to happen? The fact is, God is giving her a glimpse into his goodness and his care and his grace and his mercy, because she begins to see and she begins to realize that there's a possibility of redemption because God has not forsaken the living or the dead. That he's not forgotten her, that he's not left her, but that his commitment of love to her is real. And she is beginning to see the possibilities of how that's going to work out in time and in space. So what we're going to see this morning is what begins to happen when someone moves from depressed hopelessness to expect and hope in the Lord and his goodness, kindness and grace. So let me just say right right here and now that I am certain, I am sure uh, that uh, many of you uh, and perhaps all of us uh, have experienced in the last year and maybe experiencing even now a sense of hopelessness. Maybe not complete hopelessness, but there are situations in your own heart and life there are issues in your own struggle with, with sin, your own brokenness, the brokenness that you experience with others, the, the coldness that you experience towards God and the coldness with which he seems to treat you may tempt you to hopelessness. And now, now Naomi manifests her hopelessness in, in a depressed kind of low energy kind of place where she just seems unable to move or uh, uh, to do anything. For, for us, for uh, you know, more modern, more competent people like we are, it tends to uh, evidence itself in cynicism, an even darker place, really, uh, uh, than Naomi's sad uh, kind of depression. And so, so what we see here is suddenly as Boaz begins to care for them, uh, as she begins to understand, perhaps something could change here. Now remember, uh, Ruth still has to glean for them to get something to eat. Uh, they're only able to get extra things to eat because Boaz is giving it to them off the leftovers from his table. Uh, the barley harvest, the wheat harvest is going to last about Six or seven weeks, and we left two weeks ago with the question, well, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen when the harvest is over? What are they going to do uh, for something to eat? And so what happens here is, and what I think is profound, is that she begins to get this sense of hope. She begins to see that God has not forgotten her and that he's for her, and that hope helps to move us in integrity and joy. So not only does hopelessness make us stuck, 
like Naomi is, or like perhaps you are this morning in sadness or in cynicism, but it is also a root of sin. And I want you, I want you to see the connection in this this morning because this helps us understand what's going to happen in this story because really it's weird. Ruth, take a shower, put on your perfume, get your best dress. Go down there to the threshing floor. And when uh, Boaz has had enough to eat and drink and he lays down to go to bed, sidle up there, uncover his feet, which is a euphemistic way of saying, get close to him. And when he wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. Right? He'll tell you what to do. And I can see from some of your faces, you're like, yikes, this is in the Bible. What is, you know, should I ask my kids to leave now? No, that's next week. <laughs> um, right? Um, because I, I want you to see what's, what's happening here. Because here's one of the things that you may not have thought about. Um, you may not have, have, have given uh, uh, the fact that your struggle with sin this morning might actually not be rooted so much in temptation, although that's very real, or rooted in your weakness, although that's very real, but that it could be rooted in your hopelessness. You drink too much. You eat too much. You look at things you shouldn't look at. You indulge certain things. Because you're hopeless. You see, the sin of hopelessness isn't just a lack of joy that God commands for us. But I believe that hopelessness is a pathway that leads us to sin. Because if I have no hope, if there is no God who has remembered me, if there is no God who has not forsaken me, and I am left to make it in this world... And I am left to make it in this world with, with, with my own resources and, and my own ability and, and that sort of thing. Then I am tempted to deal with my life, to take matters into my own hands, to seize the initiative, to deal with this deficit in my soul in my own way. And so what happens is because I lack hope and I lack joy, I often lack integrity because people who have no hope will either place their hope in a false hope, something that anesthetizes their pain or their difficulty or their guilt or their shame, or or they will simply see something, do something that they believe will ultimately give them the hope that their soul longs for. And so not only is this an issue of joy, not only is this an issue of depression, not only do you get stuck, right, that you can't move, but I think it actually leads us to a place of, of alienation from one another and alienation ultimately from God. You see, this is one of the reasons why the church is so important. This is one of the reasons why worship is so important is it reminds us on a regular basis to place our hope in this God who is for us. In this God who has come and lived and died and risen again and who is coming for us. You know, one of the things that I think is so 
marvelous about uh, these, these prayers of the people that we do every year. And in fact, you know, you should take this bulletin home and you should take this prayer out and you should pray it regularly. Uh, is where uh, we, as we've prayed, for those that have lost in death the ones they love. And I love this this next sentence. For all who continue in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. The, 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 the word there that I think is so important is the word continue. That, that what hope does for us is it lifts our eyes beyond ourselves to the God who is for us, who loves us, who has remembered his faithful covenant to us, and who in the midst of our brokenness and our sadness and our lament, which are real and genuine, we don't fall prey and we don't fall into the dark hole where we think God has forgotten me. Because when I fall into the hole where I believe God has forgotten me, I am particularly prone to temptation and to sin. But not only that, not only does hope do uh, help uh, help us uh, uh, change and help us uh, deal with and see the ugliness of sin for what it is, it also moves us to see and to love others. You see, remember what what Naomi has said, Ruth. You need to go away. What she and and when Ruth says, "I'm going to go out and get us something to eat," all she can say to her is. Um, my daughter, you know, uh, uh, yeah, just, just, just go. Uh, but what, what she says here is she looks at Ruth and all of a sudden, because she has some hope, because she senses that God may redeem this situation, she says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well for you? Suddenly she can see something other than herself. She begins to see Ruth and she says, Ruth is a widow, just like I am. Ruth needs a husband. She needs a redeemer. She needs someone to care for her. Because remember what she said uh, earlier in the book. Next next slide, please, please Becky. Um, that hope has lifted Naomi's eye from herself only to, only to actually serving Ruth in the way she was supposed to all along. Because remember, Naomi had a responsibility. And her responsibility to her daughters-in-law were to help them find husbands who would care for them. Remember uh, in, in the first chapter, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So what has happened to Naomi is she was so turned in on herself, so convinced that God was against her, that she can't even think about any kind of obligation or care for her daughter-in-law. And so what does she do? She tells him to go away. But now, now all of a sudden, she has this sense that, aha, there is a God. And he, he might love us. And he might remember us and he might have tied himself to us in, in this love and this grace and this, this mercy. And he might be pre- uh, pre- preparing for us and providing for us through Boaz. And so suddenly she gets strategic. Suddenly she begins to hatch a plan. She begins to look at Ruth and thinks, aha, let me help you figure out. Let me help provide for you and show you what you need to do to get a husband. So she sends Ruth on this mission. Now, 
Hopeful people take risks. And this is a risk. Now, I know what you're thinking. Because we're, because what I thought the first time I ever read this. What I'm thinking is, well, yeah, young, beautiful, dressed up, smelling good in her best dress, going and laying down at the foot of the old guy. He is an old guy. What's he going to do? Come on. Something terrible is going to happen there. Something ungodly is going to happen on the threshing floor. Something, 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 something. You think that's a risk. Have you thought about the other risk? I think there's a bigger risk. And whether you've jumped ahead to that risk or not, will give an indication of what you think of God's redemption, at least initially. What do we know about Boaz? When Boaz first shows up on the scene, when Boaz first shows up on the scene, what do we know about him? What is, what's the first thing out of his, his mouth? God bless you. He's a God-oriented, covenant-oriented man. We know that about him. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that he's a man of integrity, a man of substance, who knows God, who loves God, and who has a, a certain uh, uh, understanding of the way in which God works. He's a man of integrity. So what happens if Ruth shows up and he says, get away from me? What happens if Ruth comes there and he says, I want nothing to do with you because you're loose. You're not the kind of woman I'm interested in. Could it happen? I think actually that's a bigger risk than the other risk that we're looking at. But you see, what happens here is because Naomi hopes and she trusts in the goodness of God that will also supply not just whatever is going to come from this situation, but she sees and she has understood the integrity in Boaz that God has provided that's required for this situation. She is trusting and she is hoping not just in God, but in time and in space that this God is at work in Boaz and that this will awaken in him the obligation that he has as their redeemer to take on this responsibility to care for Ruth and therefore to care for Naomi. You see, what hope is doing in, in, in Naomi here is not only helping her uh, to uh, bust out of her own sadness and her own joylessness, but it's also helping her to care for Ruth. And it's also helping her to see the goodness and the grace of God in Boaz. We need one another to help each other to hope together. Because left to our own devices, we'll sink further and further into hopelessness and probably further and further into sin. But hopeful people who know that there's a God who loves them, who know that this Jesus has come and that he's lived and that he's died, that he's risen again, that he's made full atonement for their sins, know and understand that whatever brokenness they may be experiencing, whatever difficulty they may be experiencing, it's not the end of the story. Next slide. Um, take this down for a second. Uh, 
Becky. Um, years ago, when we used to worship on the first Sunday of the year, I used to take the time to mock New Year's resolutions and tell everybody that they were stupid and sinful and you shouldn't do them. Some of you are laughing because you remember that, because I offended you. Because uh, you thought you had a pretty good resolution, and I just poo-pooed on it. And, you know, when the pastor poo-poos on, especially a religious resolution, I resolve to pray more. I resolve to be better. I resolve to be kinder. I resolve to be gentler. I resolve to be joyful every single day. I resolve to love my enemies. Right? Well, the reason why I don't like those, and I didn't like those, and I still don't like those, is because those resolutions are what I call religious flesh. And what I mean by that is, often that is an attempt on our part to establish some spiritual end, some spiritual good in our lives with our own effort. Which is... It's not going to work. For instance, almost nobody starts the year by saying, Lord, I resolve this year to be more humble. So that when June rolls around and you look at yourself and you say, hey, it worked. Look at how humble I am. (laughs) Right? And certainly, nobody begins the year by saying, Lord, would you humble me this year? Right? So, I've kind of changed my attitude about it. I think there's some great things that we could resolve. But I think the thing that I would like for us to resolve is for Jesus to be alive in us and for the clarity of his work and the gospel to be in us because I think that would make us hopeful. I think that would make us joyful. And honestly, I think that would help to put to death some of the lingering sin that resides in us. So I came across this quote, which I think is a great way for us to to think about this. Um, You were made for a life of love. Now, uh, the reason why this caught my attention is because that sounds like great news to me because what I feel like my life is that I was made for a life of transactions. That I'm spending my time and my energy in transactions. But actually, I was made for a life of love, love received from God, and love shared with his creatures. So as you think about today and you think about the coming year, you number your days, you order your life in this way, whether you have many more years or just a few more hours. And when your last hour comes, when your days are numbered, you die in the strength of God's promise Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. You see, the the thing is that in the end, 
the, the one thing that gives us hope is the certainty that Jesus Christ has died and, and because of his life, because of his death, and because of his resurrection, I am justified. And because he has risen from the dead, he intercedes for me. And he is way more engaged and involved in what happens to me spiritually, way more engaged and involved in what happens in my life in the coming year than I could ever dream to be. Next slide. So don't be confident in your youth or strength. And if you're not confident in your youth or your strength, then you won't despair when they fail. Notice it's not if they fail. Don't worry about the coming year. Now, I know I lost most of you when I read that. Uh, because you're not finished with worrying about the past year. <laughs> and so to tell you not to worry about the coming year seems really stupid and naive because there's a lot out there to worry about. And if you haven't started worrying about it, I hope I just made you a little more nervous about it, right? What does Steve know that I don't know, right? Um, Rather, live each day in the wisdom of God. And what does that mean? Do the work of your vocation. Do what God's called you to do. Every day, wake up. What has God called you to do today? Do that. If you need somebody to tell you what to do, do what God's called you to do. Forgive your neighbors, and I would even submit to you, not just your neighbors, but forgive your enemies, particularly the ones that are sitting next to you. This morning. Rejoice in Christ crucified for your forgiveness and rejoice all the more at his resurrection and his coming at the last day. For in his hands is every hour, day and year, even unto the ages to come. Because here's the thing what the cross says to me, what the empty tomb says to me is, that uh, this, you know, I've, I have said to you guys for 23 years, God gets the last word. So true. But you know what I'm going to start saying? Just thinking about this this week. Not just that God gets the last word. But God gets the last laugh. Because there's joy. There's joy. And if there's joy, there's hope. And if there's hope, there's life. And if there's life, there's reason for us today to follow hard to where Jesus might take us. See, my prayer for us this year is uh, that the better among us would come a little, become a little sweeter and a little softer, not by human resolve, but by declaration of the goodness and the redemption of our God in Jesus Christ. So what a great thing today to come to the Lord.